This morning we are continuing our look at the section in the Sermon on the Mount that concerns wealth and finance. Last week we looked at how Jesus introduced the subject by instructing us not to be slaves to chasing after and hoarding up wealth for ourselves here on earth. Instead, he tells us to be a slave to chasing heavenly treasure, treasure that we can inherit and enjoy for an eternity. To serve one of those two purposes is to neglect the other. So we have some serious thinking to do concerning what we do with our wealth. I'm sure that there's no one here this morning who would deny that that's a massive challenge to us as wealthy Western Christians. But Jesus isn't done talking about money. We're going to look this morning at how he further unpacks the subject. He provides us with deeper understanding and gives us some motivation by painting a picture of a life that is not enslaved to money. One of the ways that he does this is by contrasting a life which relies on God's ability to provide for all of creation with the kind of life that we are all much more familiar with, the kind of life that seeks to be autonomous, to be in control, and to be self-reliant. But that, of course, is consequently a life that is marked by anxiety. So we're going to spend quite a bit of time this morning thinking about God's ability to provide for all of our needs, and then we'll relate that back to our attitude concerning money. So let's listen then to God's words, to the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Well, in this passage, Jesus exposes our lack of trust in God's 
uh, ability to provide by calling us out on our anxiety concerning wealth. Anxiety is the fruit of the issue, but our lack of trust in God is the root of the issue. So this means that if we are experiencing this kind of anxiety today, and I think that we all do to some extent, then there's a good chance that when we examine our lives, we will discover that we do not truly believe that God is who he says he is. When I was a student living in Belfast City, I rented a house near the university with two of my friends. During that time, I recall that we had one of the coldest winters that I can remember. It was bitterly cold and the snow lasted for months. Now, on the one hand, our parents were obviously very proud of us for the fact that we had made it to higher education. But on the other hand, I'm sure that became mingled with disappointment and embarrassment when they learned that between the three of us, we lacked the common sense to put money on the gas meter so that we could be warm and comfortable. I sat in my room each evening, trying to warm my hands over an old candle as I tried to write my assignments. I could barely feel the pen between my fingers and how my instructors managed to read my writing, which is dreadful at the best of times, will forever be a mystery. But here's the thing, I believe that extortionate university fees and overinflated student rent had forced me into the position that I was in. But the sad reality is that I had more than enough money in the bank if I had wanted to heat the house. But I chose to live like this because of anxiety about money. I lived in a self-inflicted fear of not having enough money to buy food. And as a consequence, I became frugal to a fault. It was the result of allowing myself to believe that my situations, my future, my happiness, my security, my ambitions, that all of these things were under my control and that they could be manufactured from the resources available to me. It's fair to say that I was, and in many ways still am, a slave to money. In fact, just last night, I spilt water all over my sermon notes. And I found myself in a marriage where both partners work full-time, wincing at the idea of having to reprint a few pages. <laughs> so here I am with my tatty notes this morning. This is what happens when we live in a world that says that money is the passaparto, the skeleton key to all of life. It enables you to do anything, to go everywhere, to have every kind of experience under the sun. People will admire you and they will flock to you, but if you've not got money, you've got nothing. So you'd better make sure that you hoard up enough of it, otherwise your life will be meaningless. That's the prevailing sentiment towards money in our society. And it's amongst the greatest of the devices that the enemy uses to keep the Christian's attention and energy away from Jesus, away from God's kingdom, and focused firmly on self. It can turn the Christian from a friend of the broken, from an ally to the downtrodden, from a, uh, same word, from a force for good into a quivering wreck 
of anxiety. And that's just where the enemy wants us, completely inert and completely ineffectual for God's kingdom. And we're all there in the same boat. We're all caught up in this to some extent. But praise God for these everlasting, ever true words of Jesus. Listen again to what he says. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, how you will clothe yourself. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? The remedy for our anxiety and a critical component that enables the Christian to live radically different with their money and possessions is being convinced that God is able to provide for all of creation. So this morning, as we explore the nature of God's providence, we have three questions that we are going to look at. To what extent does God care for his creation? To what extent does God care for us? And then in what way specifically does God care for us? Like many things, our ideas about money are inseparable to our ideas about God. We live in an age where the new atheists tout science as the great champion that has put to death the idea of God. Next to atheists, you've got deists who claim that the universe was created by some kind of supreme being, but that he lacks any and all interest in what he has created. There are so many alternative ideas about who God is. Agnosticism, pantheism, panentheism, polytheism. The vast array of options gets confusing very quickly, and it's somewhere on the level of trying to understand what you're ordering at Starbucks. But all of these alternative ideologies have got one thing in common. They do not believe in the God of the Bible. They do not believe in Yahweh. If you were asked a follower of one of these, to what extent does God care for his creation? You would receive answers about a God who is detached from his creation, or a God whose provision is uncertain, or a God who simply isn't there at all. Answers like these leave people with a partial or a complete dependence on self or on humanity to meet their basic needs. And of course, the problem with that is that we cannot find lasting security in self or in humanity as a whole. Our bodies have an expiration date. Kingdoms and governments fail and come crashing down. And when people choose to depend on things that by very nature are subject to change and decay, it's not surprising that anxiety finds its breeding ground. But on the other hand, Jesus talks about a God who feeds the birds of the air and clothes the grass of the field with flowers. Jesus describes a God who has got an interest in his creation, a God who does provide for what he has made, a God who sustains all things in his creation by his word of power. 
the Bible is clear that God, specifically Jesus, is keeping the universe going. Hebrews 1 and verse 3 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. This description of Christ is anything but disinterested. It doesn't say that God created a self-sustaining universe, but rather it seems to imply that the whole universe is somehow dependent on Christ and his word of power to keep going. So if Christ were to lose interest in us and stop sustaining the universe, then it would be like pulling out the power lead to your computer. The whole thing would just cease to work. So the mere fact that the universe is still going strong is a, it's a testament and speaks volumes about how much our God cares for what he has created. But we can narrow the focus down even more. We can ask, to what extent does God care specifically for us as human beings? And of course, the question is already answered. If he cares for all of creation, then he must care for us. But it seems that Jesus does not consider that to be the length and breadth of it. I'm sure you've all heard it said, and it's a popular opinion today, that human beings are just another species of animal. And while there might be some truth in that in a biological sense, you know that that is not the full picture. Jesus considers how God feeds the birds of the air, and then he says, are you not of more value than they? Jesus considers us to be on a different level from the rest of creation. So if the smallest beasts in creation can rely on God's provision, then how much more should we be able to trust God since we are his special act of creation, distinct from everything else in that we were made in God's own image? Am I the only one who finds it embarrassing that when it comes to relying on God, his own image bearers are being upstaged by birds and plants. But to really see the extent of how much God cares for us, you need look no further than Jesus himself. He is the measure of how much God cares for humanity. God sent his only son to die for us and to meet our ultimate need of a saviour. And if we can trust him to meet our greatest need, then we can trust him to meet our basic needs. So let no one leave here this morning believing that our God is not invested in our lives. But if our God does care about us and he is invested in our lives, then why don't I see his hand at work more often in my life? And why do people go hungry? Why do people suffer in poverty if he cares so much and provides? Well, we shouldn't be afraid to ask tricky questions like these, unless, of course, you're the one preaching the sermon, in which case they're terrifying. But I shall do my best to answer them. They're not easy questions, but I believe that if we can make the effort to wrestle with them, then it will only serve to increase our faith and trust in him. 
In Ephesians 1 verse 11, we read that God accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. In Daniel 4 verse 35, he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And Romans 11 verse 36, from him and through him and to him are all things. Can I be so bold as to say that nothing in the universe happens that is outside of God's will? And I do mean nothing. He causes the rain to fall and the grass to grow. Day turns to night and night back to day by his ordinance. All creatures, great and small, are fed by his will. He administers the successes and the failures of human government. And you can't even roll a dice or flip a coin without God having first determined the outcome. It's pretty radical to make claims like that today. I don't know about you, but I find it very easy to be skeptical of the idea that God is in absolute control. I tend to think about things in terms of the chain of cause and effect in the physical world as being the reason why things happen. And part of me feels content to say that that's all there is to it. But what you have to understand is that everything that happens is happening on two levels. On our level, the physical level, it is all about this chain of cause and effect. But on a higher level, the whole process is happening because God wants it to. And though it sounds like I am describing a God who is some kind of master of puppets or some kind of dictator, here's the mind-blowing part. Our God is capable of working through the natural behavior of his creation. He's so clever that he is able to achieve what he wants to achieve. He's able to achieve what he wants to achieve without forcing anyone or anything to be something that it is not. As an example, if God wants to, if he wants crops to grow successfully, he doesn't just change the nature of the soil and make it suddenly fertile. He is able to let the soil just be soil. And he's able to let the rain be rain. And he's able to let the sun be sun. And he can bring all of those things together. And through their natural behavior, he achieves his purpose of making the crops grow. And because he works through the natural behavior of his creation, believe it or not, you and I are still making free choices on our level, even though our actions are ordained by God on a higher level. And this is why we are so often oblivious to what God is doing and the way that he provides, because he works through the natural behavior of things. But if he determines all things, then what about evil and poverty in our world? And that's a great question. In my English literature class at high school, we read the novel To Kill a Mockingbird. It's a story about an innocent man who is falsely accused of a crime 
and he ultimately ends up getting shot because of racial prejudice. We spent a lot of time in our English lessons talking about the various characters responsible for killing him. But when we just wanted to wind our teacher up, we would say, oh, but isn't Harper Lee technically responsible for his death since she wrote the story? And on the surface, it makes it sound like the author is complicit in the crimes. But actually, what Harper Lee did was she constructed a story out of the natural broken behavior of human beings. And she used it as an instrument for a far greater purpose of exposing and undoing prejudice in the people who read her novel. And in so doing, she turns deeds and acts that were meant for evil into something for good. Similarly, you and I are real living characters in God's story. As an author, he is a kind author who desires that everyone would work together and have their needs met. But we need to understand that for a purpose, he also allows some measure of evil to exist in the story. Through the sinfulness of characters that don't want to be subject to his authorship. They don't want to live under his guidelines. And sometimes he is writing a part of the story where ordinary people are being affected by evil. They experience things like hunger and poverty. And though it is uncomfortable to go through, when that part of the story is complete, we will be able to look back and see how our great God was able to twist all of the purposes of evil back into an even greater good. He is the God who frustrates the purposes of the enemy. He turns the enemy into a mere pawn and causes all things, even evil, to work together for the good of those who love God. He allows evil to exist for a time and for a purpose. And on the day when he completely destroys evil, all of the author's followers will enjoy the peace all the more for having lived through the evil. And our view of God will be magnified for having seen his complete dominion over all things, even his greatest enemy, and for having seen that there is nothing that is greater than God. So this is the nature of God's providence. We are to know that all our blessings flow from him and that all of our hardships are merely the darkness before the dawn of a greater blessing and that we can trust in the goodness of God absolutely to carry us through. So concerning these questions of what shall we eat, what shall we drink, and what shall we wear? The people of the world take the self-centered view that all of these things I can have because of my money in my bank account that came from my job. And this self-reliance breeds anxiety and enslaves us. We need to understand 
that yes, our jobs and our finance might be the literal way in which God meets our needs. But that is not the ultimate reason why we have them. We have them because our God ordains that we will have them. And we can rest secure in peace and contentment, knowing that if our job or if our bank account were to disappear tomorrow, then God would continue to meet our needs, albeit in a different way. We worship a God whose love for creation runs deeper than we can imagine. We worship a God who knows and meets the needs of his people. Having a right view of who God is and how deeply he cares for us is a critical component in driving out our anxiety and our slavery to wealth. If we can do that, then we are liberated to take on the yoke of a new master, to give freely from what we have without worrying about having enough ourselves. It enables us to become the means of God's blessing for those who can't afford to live. What a privilege. Lord, give us hearts that are free to sow our finance joyfully into the mobilization of your kingdom. Amen.